0: love-hate relationship with Google Maps. It's really convenient, isn't it? Yeah, all you need to do is you plug it into your phone and it tells you where to where to go. Very different to the old days. Uh, I know a lot of you aren't going to believe this, but there was a day when we actually had to use a book, a thing called a street directory, to find out where you're around. And if I was driving on my own, not only that, but I, would have, to, I ha- would have to pre-plan my route. I would have to write it out on a sheet of paper and I would have to, say, turn right at Norton Street and then go to the end of this, blah, blah, blah. Old school. Hard to believe, isn't it? But now, of course, my phone tells me where to go. And mostly it gets it right. Right. But there are some times when Google Maps has a brain freeze, have you ever noticed that or is it just me, where it tells me I want to go to, from, to Hurstville from Bankstown, and tells me to go via Manly or something. <laughs> partly because of that and partly because of my male pride, I sometimes take matters into my own hands. When my phone says to go straight, sometimes I just decide to turn right, I think, I'll follow my nose. I know where to go. This has got to be quicker. When Julie and the boys are with me, they groan and complain at this point because they know that we're going to get hopelessly lost. They've been there before. No worries, I tell them. I've got an instinct. I I know where where to go. This is a shortcut. Now, it hurts me to admit it, but they're usually right. Instead of getting to the beach, we end up in some industrial wasteland miles from where we're supposed to go. The term dad shortcuts has become something of a byword in our family. Now, anytime I suggest using my initiative and ignoring Google Maps, I face a mutiny in the car. The silly thing is, I haven't learnt from my mistakes. Even after repeated excursions to waste facilities, no through roads, even impassable four-wheel drive tracks, each time I think, yeah, this is going to work out. I I know where to go. I've got an instinct. I've got a feeling for this. I still have a mindless optimism that this time I'm going to shave minutes off my trip. But I keep making the same mistakes. It seems that I never learn. In today's passage in the book of Numbers, it looks like God's people are also doomed to repeat their mistakes. Do you remember back in chapter fourteen? Here's a test for you: in chapter fourteen of Numbers, who can tell me what? Ha- maybe that's unfair. What, what was a big turning point for the first generation of the Israelites that that changed the course of their history? Who can tell me that? Here's a test, Pete. Oh, so, yeah, come on, come on, come on. Someone must know. Someone else <laughs> Some <of> us, <laughs> I'll give you a clue. It led to them wandering around a long time and actually not making it to the land. Do you remember that? No, not the choir. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So chapter 14, they were... Um, The spies, remember, went into the land. They brought back a good report. The people didn't believe them. Or at least two people had a good report, Caleb and Joshua. The others said, no, we can't ever take this land. And it led to a rebellion of the people. As a consequence, God swore that none of that generation except Caleb and Joshua could make it to the land. So that whole generation were doomed to wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died out. They didn't learn, though, from their mistakes. Time and time again they grumbled against God and rebelled against Moses in the desert. Remember the rebellion of Korah, complaining about having no bread and then more recently falling into sexual sin um, with, the, with the Moabite women. They wandered until that whole generation died off. And now at the end of the book, there's a new generation, a new beginning. They are about to go into the land of Canaan. But it looks like history is repeating itself. It seems like nothing's changed with this new generation. It looks like at the 11th hour, two tribes are going to spoil it for everyone by pulling out of the deal and saying they'd rather stay on the other side of the Jordan. And we left, as the book of Numbers wraps up, we left wondering, how's all this going to end? Are they ever going to make it? Are they ever going to get into the land? Well, our passage starts off in chapter 31 with God telling Moses to take revenge on the Midianites. Where are we up to? Okay, first side. Okay. At first glance, this doesn't seem to have much to do with going into the land. But as we dig deeper, we'll see that this whole section, including this chapter, is about preparing to live in the promised land as God's people. And this first section is about preparing for life under a holy God. So what's going on here? The Midianites are a loose alliance of people from a number of different nations. Some of you may have heard of the Amalekites and we encountered them back in Exodus, Exodus 17. Uh, Do you remember the story when they came out of Egypt and then the Amalekites come out and try to beat them up And, um, and God is with Moses and the people and they end up defeating them. And the Moabites are also with them. Remember back in Numbers chapter 25 when the Moabite women led the Israelites into sexual sin and idol worship? Well, it seems here that because of that incident, that's the main reason for war against the Amalekites, to to punish the Moabites for leading them astray. But it's not so much the battle itself that's the focus of this chapter as what it says about God about how God's people were to conduct themselves before a holy God. How could they keep themselves pure and dwell with a God who cannot tolerate sin? After the battle, we're told that all the Midianite men were killed, but Moses was angry because the Israelites allowed the women to live, verses 14 to 15. Now to our ears, that seems pretty brutal, doesn't it? to wipe out not only all the men but the women as well. But verse 16 tells us why. Numbers 31:16 says they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor so that a plague struck the Lord's people. So what's going on here the reason why God commanded them to to destroy all the people, including the women, was that they threatened to turn them away from God. And a holy God cannot dwell with a people who are mixed up in idolatry and sin. He just cannot do it. So God is ruthless with anything that threatens to lead his people astray. It was crucial that the Israelites kept themselves pure so that they could live with God in the land. And that's the focus of the commands that God gives in verses 19 to 24. Anyone who has shed blood needed to purify themselves and their clothing and anything that they touched. And then just come down to verse 22 with me. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, lead, and anything else that can withstand fire must be put through the fire and then it will be clean. So everything had to be clean. The people, their objects, the things with them so that, so that they could dwell with a holy God and he cannot tolerate anything that is impure or unclean. The Israelites could only go with God into the land if they stayed ceremonially clean. Anything that threatened that purity, objects, people, Israel's enemies, had to be destroyed or purified. So God is preparing his people to go into the land. Another reason for including this battle with the Amalekites is that it's preparing his people to go into the land and the battles that will come as they take on the Canaanites to take the land. They will have to wipe those people out or else those people, we were told, in, where is it, 33, the second Bible reading, they had to wipe them out or they would become a snare to them and drag them away from God. They had to remain pure, just like we find in chapter 31. And then the rest... Uh, Ah. I'm back on? Yep. Dividing the spoils evenly before the fighting men and the people, just as they would enter the land. So in order to enter the land, the Israelites had to be pure because God is a holy God. They couldn't be contaminated by sin. They couldn't allow themselves to be led astray by the neighbouring people. Otherwise, they could not go into the land. So chapter 31 ends well with the Midianites beaten, the spoils are divided amongst the people. And the march towards the land continues. It looks like the plan is going well until suddenly in the next two chapters we face a roadblock. It looks like the plan threatens to derail as two of the tribes want to go their own way rather than following God's plan. It's looking like an ancient version of Groundhog Day. Do you know... Who's, who's seen the movie Groundhog Day? Yeah, okay, a lot of you have seen it. Pretty ancient now, but, but it's, a, it's a classic. We left wondering, will these shaky, flaky people ever make it to the land? So Groundhog Day, for those of you who don't know, it, 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 it's a movie starring Bill Murray where he plays a weatherman who goes to this little town in the, in the, in the middle of nowhere that was celebrating a festival called Groundhog Day. A groundhog is a cute little animal, a bit big, like a big guinea pig. Um, Bill Murray's character, Phil Connors, is a weatherman and he hates being sent to do the weather in, in this little place. He hates Groundhog Day, he hates that town. Then he finds himself caught up in his own worst nightmare as he's trapped in a time loop where he keeps waking up and having to repeat Groundhog Day it seems like the Israelites are reliving their nightmare of disobeying and going through this cycle again, of disobeying God's word and reaping the consequences. It looks like a replay of Numbers 14 when the people rebelled and God made them wonder for 40 years. Look with me at chapter 32 from verse 6. Moses said to the Gadites and Reubenites, Should your fellow Israelites go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from crossing over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. Then jump down to verse 14. And here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will again leave all this people in the wilderness and you will be the cause of their destruction. Harsh words because Moses knew just how serious it was to rebel against God's commands. He feared a groundhog day for Israel. A a replay of what happened back in chapter 14. So what did Reuben and Gad, these two tribes, do that was so bad? As we read chapter 32, it looks a bit over the top, doesn't it? It looks like a bit of an overreaction. Have a look from verse 1 in chapter 32. The Reubenites and Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jazar and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the community, and said, "We'll skip over to verse four. The land the Lord subdued, just minute, the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel, are suitable for livestock, and your servants have livestock. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan." sounds pretty innocent but the problem was with where this land was let me bring up a map for you can you see that so on that map you can see there's three um three different lots of land on the right hand side of the jordan river jordan river you see that running down the middle On the right there is Reuben, Gad and Manasseh. It doesn't mention Manasseh here but they're included towards the end of the chapter in in this um, desire for land on the east side of the Jordan. The problem was and the reason why Moses reacted so strongly was that the original inheritance that God gave the Israelites was on the west of the Jordan. So where all the other tribes are was the original promised land Reuben and Gad were saying in effect that they didn't want God's plan for them they thought this land on the east side was better and if they didn't cross the Jordan with the rest of Israel Moses thought that they would avoid the difficult job of fighting the Canaanites and driving them out of the land they would have been shirking their responsibility so that's the reason why moses was reacting so strongly not so obvious as the rebellion back in chapter 14 but it was they were still saying that our way is better than god's way and that threatened to derail god's plan for the whole nation so at this point the whole mission to fulfill god's promise of his people in his land under his rule was sitting on a knife edge Would the sin of the people once again stop them from entering the land? Already in the short, rocky history of Israel, Moses had shown himself to be able to avert disaster on more than one occasion. And here he shows his skill as a wise negotiator. And his cool head, along with the leaders of Reuben and Gad, managed to avoid disaster once again. These two tribes promise Moses that if they are given this land, yes, they will go with their brothers and fight for the land of Canaan before they go back with their women and children and take possession of the land. Moses warns them to keep their word and once again the plan to enter the land is back on track. As we read this story, what's not spilled out for us, but it's very much the subtext, it's very much woven through the plot, is the grace of God. Because God had every right to cut off Reuben and Gad because they turned their backs on God. They turned their backs on his command to take the land west of the Jordan. But he graciously worked through Moses to accommodate their weakness. He made allowances for their humanness. He allowed this change of plan so that his promises to give Israel the land could stay on track. And as we go on to our last section, we see that God's promises to inherit the land get nearer. And we see the promises of a faithful God bringing his people into the land. Before the focus moves on to how God's people are to live in the land, chapter 33 is a kind of transition between the journey to get to this stage and the final push to go into Canaan. It's a summary of their wanderings in the desert um, from from the time they left Egypt to getting to the brink of the promised land. We're not going to look at the details, but every stop along the way is catalogued. The author starts off in verses 3... To four saying that the Israelites marched out in full view of the Egyptians who were burying their firstborn, because the Lord had brought judgment upon their gods. And this whole chapter is designed to recount God's faithfulness in being with them every step of the journey at every single campsite, right from the time they they ran out of, they, they escaped Pharaoh's hands the time they cross the Red Sea, to each campsite until they reach the point that they are today. And the subtext is, he will continue to be with them as long as they obey. Look again with me at verse 55, 33, 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. They will give you trouble in the land where you live and then I will do what I plan to do to you, what I plan to do to them. A reminder that they are a shaky, flaky people who disobeyed in the past. This new generation needs to obey and then they can enter the land. Well, we only have time to glance at chapters 34 to 36 but let's let's do a quick survey of it to get the big idea. Here the focus is on God's provision for his people to live with him in the land. Verse 34 is outlining the boundaries of the land of the that the Israelites would receive. Chapter 34 and 35 talks about the towns that the Levites the priests and those serving in the tabernacle the, the land that they would inherit as their as their inheritance. This isn't just a geography lesson of the boundaries of Israel. Have a look at chapter 34, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites and say to them, When you enter Canaan, the land that will be allotted to you as an inheritance is to have these, the land is to have these boundaries. We won't look at we won't look at the details of their boundaries. The inheritance of God's people. You know what an inheritance is? From your parents, from the older generation, passing down to the younger generation. In this case, it's God passing down to his people the promise of the land. He promised it way back when Abraham was living as an alien in the land of Canaan. Look with me at Genesis 17 verse 8. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, this is God talking to Abraham, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. An everlasting possession. This was their inheritance to fulfill the promises that God first made to Abraham. This confirms Yahweh would be their God, and he would dwell with them as his people. Getting this land was more than just a real estate deal. It was a sign of God's faithful presence with his people under his rule, with him fulfilling the promises that he first gave to Abraham. And then chapter 36 is an interesting way to end the book of Numbers. God tells Moses that Zelophehad's daughters were to marry within their own tribe so that their inheritance wouldn't pass to another tribe. Do you remember meeting those women back in chapter 27 where God commanded them, um, God commanded that they receive the inheritance that would normally go to the men but because their father didn't have any sons it was them who would receive the inheritance. But now God says that the people they were to marry was to be in their own tribe. Let's, um, let's look at uh, Numbers 36, verse 8. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone of her father's tribal clan so that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of their ancestors. No inheritance may pass from one tribe to another for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land it inherits. What's crucial to God is that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of their ancestors so that the land would be their everlasting possession to fulfill God's promise to Abraham. You see, the land, the whole land of Canaan, and each individual Israelite's inheritance symbolized God's presence with his people, it symbolized his faithfulness to his promise. It symbolised them living as God's people in God's land. To finish off, I want to spend a few minutes thinking about what is in these chapters and the book of Numbers in general for us. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's a great story, Marshall, about God bringing the Israelites into the land, or, well, we don't quite get there in Numbers, but almost... Bringing them to the land, but what on earth has it got to do with my life? The book of Numbers isn't just a story about Israel's history, it also looks forward to, it foreshadows a greater reality. It foreshadows a new Israel. That's us, God's people. God's people under a new covenant. Just like the old Israel, we can only enter God's presence by God's grace. We can only come to God because he provides a way for his people to live with him. The writer of Hebrews makes this connection, connection between the old Israel and the new Israel. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Moses was a servant... But Jesus was so much greater than Moses because he was the son. He is the son, the son of God. Moses could only respond to what God was doing in saving the people out of the hands of Pharaoh. Jesus himself saves us from our sins. What Moses did in the desert was only a shadow of what Jesus did on the cross. The author of Hebrews then goes on in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 to say this Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith. Of those who obeyed so the writer is talking about the people we've just been reading about in numbers the Israelites and the fact that they did not respond to God's word what God promised the Israelites a land where he would dwell with them is only a shadow of this rest that we will have in the Lord Jesus just as the promised land symbolized God's rule over his people in God's place. This rest for God's people is his church living under the Lord Jesus. That's us, isn't it? Not in not in not confined to a particular place, but everywhere where God's people are. And that rest has already begun. We're now enjoying the first fruits, the beginning of that, but it will receive its climax, its fulfilment in the new creation. Now, friends, we, we, don't, we, only see, we don't really see that now. We only see a shadow of that. But there will come a day when there will be no more death, when we won't have to have healing services because there will be no more sickness, there will be no more tears. We will be renewed, perfected, and we will live with God forever. That's our future. That's our inheritance. Isn't that something worth looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the state of origin going tonight, but that pales into insignificance, doesn't it? When talking about our future with the Lord Jesus, a wonderful promise. And Hebrews 4 is warning us not to throw away that inheritance. Because we are like the Israelites. We're shaky and flaky people, aren't we? I constantly find myself prone to wandering. I'm so forgetful. I know, I'm getting old and I have senior moments. I'm not talking about that. But I forget what God has done for me so easily. When I I cry out to God when I need him and time and time again he answers me but then when things go well I'm prone to forgetting him. We know the good news of Jesus. Don't take it for granted. Don't ignore it. Don't be like the Israelites and abuse God's grace. God's wonderful plan that started with Abraham now finds its fulfillment with us. The land of Canaan was only a shadow of the Sabbath rest that we look forward to in the new creation. God's promise is to live with us who have been rescued by Jesus forever. It's not because of who we are, because we are a shaky, flaky people, just like the Israelites but we have a generous, faithful God who provides a way for us to enter that rest. Amen.